HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program was brought to you by EscapeMaker.com. That's EscapeMaker.com. Hey, 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 I'm Jimmy Carboni from Beer Sessions Radio. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit HeritageRadioNetwork.org for thousands more. Good afternoon and welcome. Listen up, folks. It is What Doesn't Kill You, Food Industry Insights. I'm your host, Katie Kiefer, and I have the distinct honor and privilege today to preview Barry Estabrook's amazing new book, Pigtails. In case you don't know Barry Estabrook, he is a two-time James Beard award-winning journalist, uh, also the author of the New York Times bestselling Tomato Land, How Modern Industrial Agriculture Destroyed the Most Alluring Fruit. Uh, his book Pigtails is coming out in just a few days. I think it's May 4th is his pub date. Uh, and he was a contributing editor at Gourmet Magazine, as well as contributing to the New York Times dining section, the New York Times Magazine, Men's Health, Sever, Gastronomica, The Atlantic and many other national magazines. He has been anthologized in eight annual collections of the best American food writing, and his website is politicsoftheplate.com. Thank you so much for joining me today, Barry. I'm really excited. I thought that book was just a bomb. I loved it. Oh, Congratulations. thank you. You're very welcome. So I wanted to start the program because um, in the first section of the book, which you call The Nature of the Beast, by the way, your titles were hilarious. Um, it's kind of a part history of the pig uh, as it has you know, uh, evolved in America, came coming over with the Spanish conquistadors, etc. And, and part psychological profile. And I wondered if you would be so kind as to read that divine quote from Charles Dickens visiting New York City um, on page number 78. Do you have oh, that handy? Yeah, that'd be my pleasure. Oh, um, good. He, was, uh, he wrote that, that passage that I'm going to read just after he walked up Broadway to, to sort mm-hmm. of put it in perspective in, in downtown mm-hmm. Manhattan back in the 1800s. Uh-huh. And here's what he had to say about a pig he encountered. And pigs were all over New York in those days. Yeah. Um, he said, Here is a solitary swine, lounging homeward by himself. He has only one ear, having parted with the other to vagrant dogs in the course of his city rambles. But he gets on well without it, and leads a roving, vagabond kind of life, somewhat answering to that of our club men at home. He leaves his lodgings every morning at a certain hour, throws himself upon the town, gets through his days in some manner quite satisfactory to himself, 
and regularly appears at the door of his own house again at night. He is free and easy, careless, indifferent kind of pig, having a very large acquaintance among other pigs of the same character, whom he rather knows by sight than conversation, as he seldom troubles himself to stop and exchange civilities, but goes grunting down the kennel, turning up the news of small talk of the city in the shape of cabbage stalks and offal, and bearing no tales but his own, which is a very short one, for his old enemies, the dogs, have been at that too, and left him hardly enough to swear by. He is in every respect a Republican pig, going where he pleases and mingling with the best society on equal, if not superior, footing. For everyone makes way when he appears, and the haughtiest give him the wall, if he prefer it. Oh, that is just so sublime. Thank you so much. I mean, I think that does sum up the sort of insouciant quality of the pig. And um, as a former pig owner yourself, um, you can probably attest to that, the various qualities described in that passage um, more than most people. I just I just thought that was so charming and so correct. And that whole, um, that whole section, particularly the one about how trainable, how intelligent pigs are, just really struck me. And, and there was one experiment that you describe in which um, an animal scientist uh, teaches pigs how to use a computer. Can you just give us a little thumbnail? And, and why was she looking, why was she, what was she hoping to prove with that um, exercise? Yes, that was Candace Crony, who at the time was at the University of Pennsylvania. Mm-hmm. And she was given um, that challenge um, just to show how intelligent pigs were. And the reason that she decided to use computers was because she knew that if her experiments proved that pigs were extremely smart, there would be other researchers who would condemn her studies as as being subjective. She would be interpreting, you know, like people who say, my dog can talk. Right, anthropomorphizing (laughs) the piggies, yes. Right, exactly. And by doing it with computers, she couldn't do that. The computer would either say, right, or wrong. Right. No interpretation. So that's what got her into deciding to use computers. So she acquired a couple of pigs just from a standard commercial farm. They weren't special in any way. They were just pink pigs, pink industrial pigs. And um, she trained, first of all, she had to house or laboratory train them, which was no problem. And then teach them some basic commands, sort of like a a dog, Uh come, sit which they learned almost instantly. And then she was able to start them on a computer that she had cobbled together. It was a standard um, game console that she picked up at a a, a box store. And because pigs are pigs, she put it behind a plexiglass case. So they could see the screen but not maul it. And she equipped the joystick with a a shifting knob from a tractor. so that they wouldn't destroy that. And the pigs learned to move the joystick, to move a cursor on the screen, and if they hit a target area, a machine on the other side of the room would spit out some M&Ms. And, you know, pigs love M&Ms. I had no idea. <laughs> I'm going to be bringing some to the pigs. They, I they love anything. I can't imagine they're that discerning. We share that with pigs. I imagine you could offer them pretty much anything. They'd be happy to take it. That's just astonishing. I mean, how long do pigs live 
normally, like just a regular pig, you know, that you just keep as a pet? Say you kept one as a pet. You mean the, the natural lifetime of yeah, a pig? Yeah, what is the natural lifespan well, of a pig? Well, a, a, a woman I interviewed, you know, most pigs die much younger than their natural yeah. lifetime. But a woman I interviewed kept a, uh, a pig for 14 years. Oh, that would be a, Christopher Hogwood, correct? Christopher Hogwood. He grew up oh. to be a 750-pound boar, um, as gentle as a kitten, even though he was so huge. Um, wow. And he lived 14 years. Um, and then but apparently died of, of what we call old age. He died in his sleep. Oh, my God. How sweet is that? <laughs> I, I loved the Christopher Hogwood story as well. I, I really found it quite inspiring. And I was talking with some friends about, like, would I be able to keep pigs? I have some, you know, sort of rural property with a lot of, you know, oak trees, meaning acorns, and I could conceivably fence it. And, and I thought I could never raise a pig to eat it. It would just become too much of a friend. And I, I fear that, you know, that is my fate. I will never own a pig. Sadly, much as I would love to. But um, the next part of the book, or maybe it's in still part of that Nature of the Beast uh, section, is you go into a considerable discussion about wild hogs or feral pigs, you know, however people want to call them. And they are, there are millions of them throughout the United States, and they are a huge problem, a huge invasive um, issue for agriculture and just for homeowners, I would imagine. Um, so uh, the first thing that came to my mind is because you described somebody who was actually selling, you know, either selling or harvesting that meat why don't we harvest more of it i mean what's why is this not part of the you know food economy since there's all this lovely meat available i can't imagine it tastes that bad oh it tastes wonderful i've had i've had the opportunity to have it a couple of times mm-hmm. it's, it's incredibly great tasting meat it, wow. it's, um, it's richer than than pork mm-hmm. um but if you cook it if you braise it um it's fall apart tender and it doesn't have any sort of funking, you know, funkiness or an, or bloody wild animal taste. Even if really... it's from a male, from a boar, I always thought they smelled, they tasted bad because of their, you know, hormones. Um, if you get an old boar, you can run into problems with that yeah. mature boar. Is so, this the same um, but thing this, as... This okay, it came, um, the state of Texas, yeah. which is sort of ground zero for just runaway wild pig population explosion. Mm-hmm is the only place I know of where um, it's legal to sell um, the meat of wild boars. And they, they do that by um, trapping the animals, um, really, put, they round them up into corrals, uh-huh. and the door slams closed. Wow. And these animals are taken to holding areas, and where they're kept for a very limited amount of time, just a few days. Yeah. And then they're trucked to USDA inspected slaughterhouses just like a pig from a farm right which makes it their meat is inspected just like any commercial pork and so it's uh, it can legally be sold but that's the only case i know of it and that's because texas is just doing anything it can to get rid of wild pigs right i would think michigan would follow suit because they too have a huge problem with wild pigs and you probably remember a few years ago there was a big kerfuffle over um guys who had heritage breed pigs which had some uh, wild pig ancestry and so the piglets were striped and that was an automatic uh, trigger to the um, natural resource or the uh, mm, field and stream whatever that you know whatever the sort of DEP Department of Environmental Protection type guys who deal with that stuff they would come they were coming in and like rounding up people's pigs or killing them on the spot because they had these did you read about that very I, I did. You know, it, was, it, it always struck me as kind of, uh, it was very silly, because first and foremost, 
what we call wild pigs or wild boars mm-hmm. um, are the same species as the pigs that are, are on our farms. Yes, they Any definitely. little pink pig from an industrial farm, especially if it's a female, has the ability to escape if it can and live in the wild. They've retained all of their instincts even after thousands of years of domestication. So yeah. the wild pigs that are around, are a lot of them are are just a generation or two away from the barnyard. They're, they're, and they've mixed with the wild Eurasian boars that have been brought in by hunting hunters. Right. But, you know, it was it, the Michigan thing was odd because it, it really made no sense. I, I didn't think so. It, it was really nuts. And, and uh, it was... <laughs> It was really a serious battle between these various farmers and the and the Department of Environmental Protection there that I just could not uh, completely get my head around. Um, so, are, just to be clear, though, are the wild pigs we're talking about the Eurasian boars? Is that what the say the French would call sanglier? You know, the I mean, they sell wild boar in restaurants in France or in markets. Is it the same thing? It's pretty much the pretty same much? thing. It's, yeah, they're the same species, mm-hmm. um, but you know there are some body size differences and things but if you see a wild pig in the in the United States uh-huh. your first instinct in most cases would say that's a wild boar because they they tend to be dark mm. when they're mature and they certainly have a boar you know a boar like physique sort of the high shoulder and narrow narrower than a plump little uh, uh-huh. uh, farmyard pig right but they're just crossbreeds amazing it's an incredible story but um so so if they were to, I mean, this is where I'm, once again, I'm like, why are we not rounding these up? Because obviously Michigan and Texas are not the only states. I mean, this is a virtually a national population um, exceeding the millions and certainly yep. in the southern states. So I'm just, I just find it incredible that this, you know, that this basically free meat is not being harvested in the way you just described in Texas, which makes total sense to me. I'm, you know, anyway. Yeah, I mean, it really does have a lot to do with the laws concerning wildlife mm. and the laws concerning um, slaughter regulation. Right. Which is why you can't really buy wild deer meat in, in most parts of the United States. It comes from deer that are raised on on farms, basically. Yeah, yeah. Um, same, same sort of laws and regulations apply. And the, the Texas policy it makes very good sense because hundreds of thousands of pigs are shot in Texas right and just left left where they fall to 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 rot yeah and so the the relatively small number of pigs that get used are uh, you know in a way it's a wonderful resource so the hunters get to make a little more money they meat processors the slaughterhouses do yeah. it I mean, it's and uh, and you and restaurateurs get one and and restaurant customers get wonderful food. Yeah, it's so it's it, it's really something that should be encouraged. I think. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Um, at the very end of the first section of the book, though, you describe life for industrially raised pigs, and you you make the statement that there is a cost associated with how cruel we are, and I, I just wanted to like explore what you mean by that cost. I mean, is it? <clears throat> a philosophical sort of moral cost, because I certainly feel that we share that. Um, but is there more to it than that? What else are you referring to? I think that if you consider pork um, as a food, it can either be the best meat that we can eat mm-hmm. on all fronts, ethical, environmental, 
Yeah. It depends how it's raised. And unfortunately, um, 97% of the pigs that, that are raised in this country live in these horrific, crammed um, confinement buildings where they, they their feet never touch the ground. They're on hard surfaces, and they're, they really never breathe fresh air or see mm. sunshine. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, the problems, well... We pollute our waterways. Yeah. Um, huge pollution problem. And, you know, the city of Des Moines, Iowa, spends millions of dollars a year basically to clean pig manure out of its water supply. Right. Because it gets its water from a river. Right. We're um, going to talk about that. Yeah. You know, same thing in North Carolina, <coughs> you know, pollution of the Pamlico Sound and things like that, the air pollution that they mm-hmm. cause, um, the spread of resistant bacteria, the way that people are treated who work in pork slaughterhouses, these mm-hmm. employees, you know, horrific conditions are, are um, animal welfare, you know, so uh, the, the costs are huge Yeah. Um, for, for basically violating what Temple Grandin calls the, the ancient contract, mm-hmm. which was with the domestic animals, you know, we'll raise you in a way that meets your, your natural needs. Right. And in return for that, you'll give us meat. Um, but breaking that contract is what has caused you know, all of these environmental and, and ethical problems to come up. Yeah. No, I, I, it's, uh, to me, the, the pig is the, you know, the poster child for the worst of the, uh, you know, of the agricultural system. I mean, just the worst of the worst. Because, as you point out in the beginning of the book, how sentient, how intelligent they are, um, how easily trained. I mean, it's just, it's tragic to me that these wonderful um, and delicious animals should be, you know, compromised in the way that we do in our confined area feeding operations. And later on, I want to talk a little bit about what you think we could do or what, what, what you imagine might happen if we had a better system um, but could still produce the same amount of pork. But in the meantime, I wanted to talk a little bit about um, some of the uh, – you know, some of the issues that you just mentioned, but in particular that they're, um, despite these various uh, biosecurity measures of showering and changing and wearing plastic booties and stuff, all of which I've experienced, although nobody ever made me shower to go into a big barn. I was, <laughs> I was really dumbstruck by that. I don't know. I would check in with that guy's, like, track record on the perv scale there. I mean... <laughs> Well, yeah, he was a pig farmer in Iowa, a huge pig farmer. He raised mm-hmm. 150,000 pigs a year. Wow. And, uh, you know, after sort of the preliminaries in her office, his office, we drove to one of his barns, and, and he sort of dropped his pants and said, bet you've never got naked in the shower with someone you've interviewed before. <laughs> yeah, I'm and sure it was a first pair. I have to agree it? with him. <laughs> <laughs> I loved that. I thought that was so hilarious. Yeah, no, but, you know, we, we did. We scrubbed and showered and then walked sure. through... Um, as naked as babies, and and on the other side of the showers was sort of a room with coveralls and underpants and and socks wow. um, that were you know kept sanitary in there. Mm-hmm. That seems like pretty extreme, but I, I ter- certainly understand it. And and the reason for that, of course, is that it's very easy, especially in a swine population, to transmit disease. For some reason, they spread it really fast, if I'm not mistaken. And um, you pointed out a couple of new sort of pork diseases. <clears throat> that have uh, evolved over the last, I mean, since we started keeping pigs in these concentrated areas. And I wondered if you had a theory as to why some of these new diseases are, are in fact, evolving. I'm thinking of the 
the uh, diarrhea epidemic that swept through uh, the United States uh, pork farming community just a year or so ago. And then there was another one that you described, also a new disease. Um, are these antibiotic-related, meaning that because animals have been given low-dose antibiotics, they're more susceptible to new kinds of disease? Or are these just com- just related to what the conditions are that they live in? Well, they're related to the conditions they live in and what they're bred for. Uh-huh. Um, if you're breeding anything, but you know any animal, um, and you you're breeding strictly for your most important consideration is speed of growth, mm-hmm. which is what commercial pigs are bred to, to do. Right. They're bred to grow as fast as possible and as efficiently as possible. Right. Feed conversion. Exactly. <laughs> you got the lingo down. I do. Um, but <laughs> any type of breeding, is it, it's, it's a give and take. Mm-hmm. So if you focus on that, something's going to give somewhere. And what has given is is a lot of the the natural um, immunities and and strength of the immune system of the animals. Yeah. So you combine that. You combine a basically a weakened animal with conditions where they're kept by the thousands, shoulder to shoulder. Yeah. Um, literally on top of their own feces and urine, um, because. They're, they're on graded floors, and everything just falls through. Yeah. So they're, they're jammed shoulder to shoulder together in, in these fetid barns. And it's just the ideal, you know, ideal um, environment for, a, a, you know, a, a disease to spread, and that's what's yeah. happening. Yeah. The weak pigs crowded together. One catches it, and it just sweeps through. Um you know, the trucks that deliver feed or carry the pigs to slaughter visit many farms so it can right. spread. Some of these viruses can spread on the feet of starlings. Wow. Uh, you know, flying from barn to barn. Um, so it's, they try with this showering and changing to, to do everything possible uh, to make them biosecure. But yeah. germs figure out a way how to to get around the best biosecurity. They are funny that way, aren't they? <laughs> um, so then there was another thing uh, that struck me when you were talking about, <clears throat> you pondered upon, <clears throat> excuse me, the economics of big pig. And it, it struck you, as it struck me when I was reading it, that, that these consolidation of the pork industry uh, you know, seems to actually be suppressing economic growth in the communities that it uh, sort of adopts. And um, can you explain a little bit why that happens? Because you would think that, you know, having uh, lots of farm jobs, lots of pig handling jobs, lots of slaughterhouse jobs would be an economic boon, but it really does seem to be the opposite. So why is that? Well, the first thing is if you ever go into one of these large pig farms, pig barns, mm-hmm you will be struck at how few people, if any, are there tending the animals. Wow. The machines, computers do it. Mm-hmm. And, and basically, in most cases, someone might come by once a day just to make sure, just to glance around. Uh-huh. Um, so it, there's not a lot of jobs, um, you know, to go with the, the actual raising of the pigs. But secondly... And they've done they've done studies of this in in the Midwest. Is the larger a farm, 
larger a pig operation, the less likely it is to to deal with local suppliers. Oh, really? So in the old days, you know, the small pig farmer, mm-hmm. he'd buy his tractor from, from the, uh, you know, the, the agriculture equipment dealer in town. He'd get his food from the feed store in town. Right. The, the vet from town would come out to, to look after his pigs. Um, but when they, when they, you know, these big, huge confinement operations came together, many of them controlled by the same four companies, mm-hmm. they no longer do that. They have their own veterinarians who, who may live miles away. Um, they have their own feed supply. Um, they'll buy, you know, dozens and dozens and dozens of tractors or whatever um, from a, a centralized location. So, so what has happened, and it's been traced in Iowa, is that counties with huge pig, huge concentrations of, of large pig farms have actually lost jobs and and not performed economically as well as counties without um, large pig farms. So it's, wow. it's a myth. It, 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 I mean, sadly, it's usually sold to politicians as a great way to create jobs. Yes. Uh, what it does is it, it's a drain. It's a, mm-hmm. it's a way to pump money out of small rural economies. Yeah, I mean, it certainly sounds like it. And and then I'm sure that in order to attract the business, they get big tax breaks and incentives of other type that um, like uh, being, you know, not required to fulfill EPA regulations on clean air and water. So with that, we are going to take a short break. Um, we're going to have a little sponsor drop. Stay tuned for more with Barry Esterbrook. We're talking about his new book, Pigtails. And um, we will be right back after this message from our sponsor. Thanks for listening. Log on to EscapeMaker.com for more ideas on local weekend getaways and day trips, including orchards, farms, and wineries. Come by EscapeMaker's Yellow Tent in Grow NYC's Green Markets and pick up a guide to local agritourism escapes to the Green Market's own farmers and producers. Better yet, attend EscapeMaker.com's fourth local food and travel expo on May 2nd at Brooklyn Borough Hall featuring destinations in Brooklyn, New York State, New Jersey, Vermont, and Pennsylvania. Sample cheese, maple products, beer and wine from Brooklyn and beyond, and free apples courtesy of the New York Apple Association. Plus, there will be Marketplace sponsored by Taste New York and plenty of ideas for car-free getaways, including discounts via Amtrak. The expo is free for everyone, but you must pre-register at escapemaker.com to attend. Tickets are limited. See you there. This is What Doesn't Kill You, Food Industry Insights. I'm your host, Katie Kiefer. I'm talking today with Barry Estabrook, noted food journalist. Um, his new book, Pigtails, drops into stores, I think, May 4th. Am I right, Barry? Yes, exactly. That's the official release date, May That's the 4th. That's exciting. Um, but I'm sure you can pre-order on Amazon anytime you want. Um, and I highly recommend that uh, everyone read this book. I mean, you know, it's funny. I'll just uh, digress for a second here. But over the last year, year and a half, there have been uh, – there's The Meat Racket uh, by Chris Leonard, who uh, was interviewed on this show last year for his book, and, of course, Ted Genoways um, with The Chain. And I just – you know, I'm hoping that the, the exposure of the industry, you know, with now your book, Pigtail, 
details, um, you know, really starts to move the needle a little bit in terms of how consumers perceive uh, our meat supply and, you know, what can be done on the consumer end to encourage change within the industry. Because um, all three of these books were just crackerjack. And what you're describing in the at the end of the earlier segment, um, when you were describing how uh, the consolidation of the industry also means the the shrinking of uh, the economic growth of a, of a town that supports an industry like this, an industry enterprise. Um, it reminded me very much of Chris Leonard's book, uh, The Meat Racket, because it describes what I think he called the chickenization of the pork industry. Um, would you say that was an accurate description? Oh, exactly. The, um, the, the original inventors of these confinement operations were, were chicken producers, uh-huh. egg producers and, and, and meat and meat producers, which, right. which really pioneered the idea of cramming thousands and thousands and thousands of animals in a very tiny place, um, you know, and they applied this to pigs, which, you know, are an entirely different animal in terms of their intelligence and their emotional needs. Yeah, absolutely. To, to socialize and move around and things like that. So and play. It is, it is the it is the chickenization of the of the uh, of, of the of the pork industry, yeah. exactly what's happened. It's most unfortunate. Um, so you go into uh, some length in describing various whistleblowers, um, either within the Food Inspection, Food Safety and Inspection Agency, or with um, or service, I guess is FSIS, um, and then other people who worked in the hog industry who you know were just appalled either by the uh, animal welfare issues or by the pollution issues. Um, can you talk a little bit about, um, you know, you mentioned Des Moines in the first segment, um, and then there was another suit, the C-L-E-A-N suit. I can't remember, of course, what that acronym stands for, but you can. Um, tell us a little bit about that, um, because it's, it's dismaying uh, what a lock the lobby appears to have on um, congressional uh, incentives to clean up pollution? Well, in, in terms of pollution, um, the, the, the clean um, suit, which, which you refer to, is a group of farmers, farmers, not um, wow. in, in rural Missouri. Um, and, and, you know, these people were just salt of the earth, many generation farmers. Right. And this enormous pork corporation moved dozens and dozens of these confinement barns into their neighborhoods with literally producing millions of pigs a year. Just, just overnight they came in. Oh, my gosh. Um, and, you know, horrendous pollution um, problems immediately showed up. Not only air pollution, the, the, stench, the stench was unimaginable. Yeah. Um, and, and that stuff is, is poisonous. It was sickening um, mm-hmm. the neighbors. But also... You know, water pollution when when manure would would leak from the storage areas and mm-hmm. into local creeks. You know, they would have you know, ten or eleven miles of a local river where every fish would die. Oh my God! And the Missouri, um, which is, and the Missouri government and the federal government did nothing. They, these people would complain, and they did nothing. So finally, even though it was against every fiber of their being, <laughs> three of them, you know drove into Kansas City and met with a big city attorney and said, what can we do? And they launched a citizen's lawsuit to to get this mess cleaned up. And they won. But it took a long time, right? The companies, oh yeah, it went years, but they eventually won, and the companies paid the fines. Yeah. um, And then changed absolutely nothing. Wow. So the same plaintiffs sued again, and this time... They actually sued the companies, 
um, for millions of dollars, mm-hmm. and they won again. Mm-hmm. And the company paid the million-dollar settlement to the plaintiffs and changed nothing. This went on four or five times. Wow. The suit getting bigger. And, you know, this started in the mid-'90s, and if you go out there today, nothing has changed. This, it's all part of these huge fines, which now total many millions of dollars, yeah. if not close to $100 million, um, are just part of day-to-day business cost of for, doing business. For some of these pork conglomerates. Well, it's, it's just, kind of it's like... It's the cost of doing business, so it's it's cheaper for them to pay the fine than, than stop the pollution. Well, it's exactly the same. I mean, you could apply that exact same scenario to um, Jamie Dimon and what's been happening in, you know, J.P. Morgan or Goldman Sachs. I mean, it's part of a, a sort of endemic, um, hands-off, uh, hands-off my, my revenue stream. <laughs> You know, they don't mind paying the millions and billions of dollars in fees or, or fines because they know they're going to generate many more millions and billions to, you know, pay their shareholders with. I mean, it's it's really, it's it's a beautiful analogy to me that it's like the pork producers, you know, the agricultural producers are really no different um, from the robber barons on Wall Street. And, okay. you know, it's a mistake to, to think otherwise, really. Um, so in Des Moines, for example, they brought a lawsuit against a local uh, pork farmer. I can't remember which company it was. Um, because, as you mentioned earlier, their, uh, the municipal water supply was heavily polluted this past summer, um, or maybe for longer than that, uh, by pork operations um, upstream. What, what's, what's the status of that now? Well, um, it, it's actually the, the city of Des Moines Waterworks. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's, the, it's the company that supplies, the government-owned company that supplies water to all the citizens of the Des Moines area. Um, and it's suing three counties um, upstream, three large pork-producing counties, basically saying that they're violating the law by allowing these farmers, these huge agribusinesses, mm-hmm. to um, allow nutrients and manure um, to flow into the waterways that eventually um, become the Des Moines and Raccoon Rivers, which are the two main sources for Des Moines um, drinking water. And this problem has been growing steadily worse um, every year and is now reaching the breaking point. Um, A couple of years ago, there was almost a time when Des Moines was going to have to tell its people that the water was not safe to drink. They they just missed by a hair. Wow. Um, And... uh, you know, they're now at having to add this period where they have to add so much chlorine that, again, they're getting close to exceeding EPA levels of chlorine in the drinking water. And and it keeps getting worse, so they don't know what to do. They've been forced to actually try to sue to stop it because technology isn't keeping up with the amount of pollution. Right. Well, let me ask you, where is the EPA? I mean, where is the Environmental Protection Agency in all of this? Um, Gina McCarthy hasn't you know i i didn't see i I actually looked around for some information on what she might have or said or not said about um these you know nutrient runoff issues that are not just the pork industry but also for you know big corn and soy farmers because they've got the fertilizer pesticide runoff and 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 i don't really see any statements from the epa about how to even approach managing these issues are well, you familiar we're, with we're just like talking that? about two two good examples. One was the the lawsuit in Missouri, the clean right. lawsuit, which was under the Clean Water and Clear Air Act. 
right. um, a citizen's lawsuit. And the EPA was involved in that. Um, but the minute that the, uh, the Clinton administration left office and the, the George Bush II administration came in, the EPA essentially abandoned the case. Wow. Um, they, threw, they, they just settled. Uh-huh. Um, similarly, we were talking about the situation in Iowa. Right. Well, a, 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 a citizen's group um, had to basically threaten to sue the EPA, claiming that the EPA was not doing its job. Which it clearly is not. Finally, when that suit became a reality, <laughs> the EPA finally, like, dragged kicking and screaming um, into acting. I mean, what it, what it, Iowa has its own um, environmental department, mm-hmm. um, but the EPA has the power to sort of order the, the State Department to to do the right thing. And that it took a, it took a, a lawsuit that was looking like it was going to succeed before the EPA so much as, as just, you know, took the first steps toward making the Iowa Department do what it should. So, right. you know, the, the the same in North Carolina, you know, mm-hmm. the, the the water situation in North Carolina and the stench is, is horrific. Right. Nothing has happened, so, so citizens are, are forced to sue. Um, one of the problems is that all of the, a lot of the regulations that govern these factory farms haven't changed since the day when there were no factory farms. Yes. And, you know, if you have a few dozen hogs and a large acreage of crops, the hog waste is a valuable fertilizer. Sure. It's not a pollutant at all. Every morsel of it needs to be used. It's, it's you know, it saves you money. It's, it's gold. Yeah. And if you if you replace those you know small herds of pigs with mammoth barns, they become a, a, the manure becomes a dangerous pollutant, a poison. Yeah. yeah. So it's it's uh, yet it's it's it has no more regulation on it than um, than the old you know old McDonald used to have in the fifties. It's, it's astonishing. Well, one of the things that I really enjoyed reading about were the, you know, you obviously went to Denmark, which has, uh, you know, a very large uh, pork industry, um, famous for it. And, um, of course, they were in the in the forefront of banning antibiotics, uh, low-dose antibiotics in their herds, um, which was then subsequently adopted by the EU. And, um, <clears throat> and they also have different, even though they have confined area feeding operations, they're very different from ours. Can you give us a thumbnail of, like, what's different? about their methods and and you know why they've adopted their program and why we can't do the same thing <laughs> look um, into your crystal well, ball Barry you know, the, first, the first thing to realize and, and I didn't fully realize this is Denmark's pig farms are every bit as big and modern mm-hmm. and sophisticated as any in the United States it's not a case of some little Danish guy with a, with a few muddy pigs um, right it's a huge industry in yes. Denmark Denmark is an enormous pork exporting country. It's That's a country right. of five million people that raises us about one third the number of pigs that the United, the whole United States does. Uh-huh. And and it depends on export. So it's it, it's a highly competitive, highly sophisticated industry. Right. And they just do a few things differently that makes all the all the all the difference in the world. Um, 
as you said, they ban subtherapeutic use of antibiotics, um, either to prevent disease or or to make the pigs grow faster. Right. Um, this is in the, in the United States. Our farmers can you know can and do administer antibiotics at low doses to otherwise healthy pigs, and that results in resistant bacteria evolving on on farms. Sure. Yep. Um, now, somehow or other, the Danes were able to give that up. And guess what? They're, they can still compete on international markets. Their pork is still highly competitive. In fact, if mm-hmm. you eat baby back ribs in this country, there's a good chance those ribs came from a Danish pig. Wow. Um, right. You know, so um, it, it's the United States producers will say, well, we can't afford to do this, we would that. Well, Denmark suggests otherwise on that front. And they do other small things um, that make a big difference. Most American sows um, spend their entire lives in these awful things called gestation crates. Yes. Which are not even big enough um, to contain the sow. The sows stick out, bulge out from them. They only can't turn around normally or move normally or take a step. Yeah. But they squeeze through. Uh, you know, they're not even big enough to contain. Um, American farmers say this is necessary, or the or the sows fight, kill their piglets, and damage yeah. each other. Well, Danish farmers don't do that. Their sows live in larger pens with maybe twenty or twenty-five sows in each pen, with room to move around and mm-hmm. socialize. Um, pigs in the United States live in absolutely barren cages with or pens with hard floors. In Denmark, they're required to give the pigs a little something, usually it's straw, uh-huh. just a handful, put in each, in each pen. And such a trivial thing, right, as a handful of straw makes all the difference in the world in the pig's well-being. They don't eat the straw, but they, they nuzzle it, they push it around, they, they you know, chew it spit it out they, it occupies their mind it, it, it sounds almost silly no they, they play with it small yeah. as that can can help the pigs uh, um, prevent the pigs from basically going insane yeah and becoming these zombie pigs that that, that you see on these huge farms right so yeah. I guess the message is is there are many small changes that we could be making in in pork production and still be very competitive. Right. And that uh, don't require capital investment. Pardon? And that don't require big capital improvement or investment. Not much. Mm-hmm. They, a, little bit, a little bit of um, improvement in um, feeding formulas, mm-hmm. a little bit of work on breeding so that the pigs aren't so sickly, mm-hmm. and then, again, another surprisingly simple thing, leaving the pigs with the mothers, the piglets with the mothers for four weeks instead of the three weeks that American pig farmers mm-hmm. typically do. So one more week with the mother makes a huge difference in, in how these piglets survive um, and, and helps eliminate antibiotic abuse. 
Amazing. Um, I'm gonna. We only have a few minutes left, and I wanted to get to one more because we were just talking about gestation crates, and that's, you know, there are laws uh, pending and laws that have been passed that ban gestation crates, and a lot of companies have committed to only buying pork that is not raised in gestation crates. Um, you know, whether that's over the course of the next year or over the course of the next fifteen. Um, but in any case, um, you know, the Humane Society has done tremendous work in in promoting um, gestation crate free pork. And you mentioned that Cargill had had, a, in the Colorado law that banned gestation crates, you said that Cargill had um, been part of the negotiations with the Humane Society and with some of the other big pork producers. And I found it curious that um, they, you know, I mean, I think of Cargill as a pretty forward-thinking company because I know that they've done a lot to mitigate pollution, and they have some very um, fancy anaerobic digesters at their cow processing plants. And so um, is Cargill the only big producer that is um, participating in these improvements to pork husbandry or pork industry or or all, all of the big four uh, participating in, in some of these law, changing laws? Well, the... We're referring to gestation crates. Yes. Of all the things I saw during my years of researching pigs, the the most um, gut-wrenching was the sight of a thousand big sows in a low, dark barn, each each in these tiny, filthy crates. Yeah. And I'm so glad that we can say that gestation crates are going to be relics of the past. Yeah, they're gone. They're goners. It'll take, like you said, ten years or so before they are gone. But they're goners. And um, what happened was, you know, organizations like the Humane Society um, of the United States started to win referendums um, in in states that have referendums. Mm-hmm. You know, dictating this that you can't do this anymore in our state. And eventually, some big companies and some states and some state farming organizations, Colorado is a good example, realize that, hey, we can spend millions of dollars to fight this. Right. Or we can negotiate and, 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 not, and save ourselves a million dollars and probably be in a better place. So right. that's happened. And then huge companies, it's hard to name one food companies, it's hard to name one now that isn't a board started saying, mm. we don't want our pork coming from sows that live in gestation crates. And there's nothing like that to catch the ear of, of industry. <laughs> right. And, and so, you know, once I mean, in 30 or 40 of these companies, everything from McDonald's to Chipotle to Whole yeah. Foods to Kroger to, you know, to all the big food service companies say, uh, have stated what they want. And, you know, big, big companies, including Smithfield, which is the largest pork producer, yeah. have have come together, you know, have come to the conclusion that they better change. Right. And and they are. I, I wish it would be quicker, but yeah. they are. But at least it's happening. Unfortunately, we have arrived at the end. I'm not even done with you, Barry. I could go another 20 minutes, half an hour, but we'll save that for the next time. Um, in the meantime, tell us where people can um, hear you read or discuss your book. Are you doing any panels, any... Um, you know, any events that people should know about and also tell us about where they can find more information about pigtails, either as a website or, you know, whatever you want. Well, they can visit my website um, where all these things are, are kept up to date. It's Great. Uh, politics of the plate, all one word, dot com. Yep. Um, and 
they can also order the book or pre-order the book at the moment. You know, pretty where wherever they prefer, however they prefer to buy their books. It's it's order. You can order it now from. Yeah, it should be out there. I mean, it really should not be hard to find at this point. And I, I'm sure it will be brilliantly and glowingly reviewed. And if it's not, well, I'll, I'll have to do some reviews myself. Um, but I, <laughs> I thank you so much for joining me today, Barry. I really appreciate it. I was excited to have you on the on the show uh, for a second time. And I, I'm just, I thought the book was just a total winner in every way. Um, you know, readable, entertaining, engaging, and at the same time, very, very well researched and knowledgeable about the ills of our industry here and, and hopefully what we can do to make it better in the future. So um, thanks for writing it, and thanks again for being on the show. And thanks Thank for you for having me. Oh, it was my pleasure. Um, see you next week, folks, uh, with the great Tom Philpot. Uh, that's Barry's, actually, um, Barry quotes. I'm quoting him there. Um, but we'll be talking more about almonds next week with Tom, so that should be fun, too. Thanks for listening, and have a great week. Thanks for listening to this program on heritageradionetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore radio. You can email us with questions anytime at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a 501c3 nonprofit. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening. Yeah.